<clears throat> well, today is going to be our uh, last Sunday in the book of Acts. I think I've, I'm setting a modern Elmwood Park Bible Church record for fastest speed through a book, particularly of this length. So, I cheated. I, we only went through portions of it, so it doesn't count. <clears throat> uh, as we've made our way through uh, the book of Acts and looked at the handful of stories that we have, I've tried to emphasize over and over and over again that Acts is the story of what Jesus continues to do. That God is the main character of the book of Acts and that he is the one who builds the church. Both in the first century and now, God builds his church. By his grace, God invites us to be on board with his project, his project of redemption. So in order to be on board with this project, as we've seen in the book of Acts, we need to devote ourselves to a faithful, obedient, abiding relationship with God. We need to foster a here-I-am-Lord attitude. And proactively, we have to use the gifts and resources and talents that we have in order to serve and love our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we do those sorts of things, we have the true privilege of being on board with God's project, this thing that God is up to. We have the privilege of, of living in harmony with the very purpose of our existence. And that is, in large part, I think, what it means to live an abundant life. Still, though, God invites us to participate in his project. He doesn't need us, but he invites us. And there is nothing we can do to thwart him. The future of the church and the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes do not depend on us. He invites us to be on board, but they, those plans and purposes do not depend on us. He doesn't need us. Throughout our time in the book of Acts, we've seen a number of examples of the supernatural way that God has intervened in human history to bring about his plans and purposes. That God is the one who causes these things to happen. He does not need us. So on the day of Pentecost, for example... The Holy Spirit was poured out in a powerful, evident, miraculous way. The disciples were enabled for ministry, and literally thousands of people who witnessed the events of that day and who heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost came to faith in Christ. Supernatural, miraculous. On the road to Damascus, while Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the church, on his way to imprison and possibly even execute more Christians, God intervened in a supernatural way, speaking directly to Saul and blinding him. God arranged for Saul to meet a man named Ananias, who would be God's chosen instrument to heal Saul from his blindness. And as a result of this intervention, this divine supernatural intervention, a man who had passionately devoted himself to violently persecuting Christianity became a Christian himself. Remarkable what God can do. Not only that, as you know, this man, Saul, Paul, would spend the rest of his, his life establishing churches throughout the Mediterranean world and writing 13 books of the New Testament. It's amazing what God can do when he supernaturally intervenes. One day, God spoke to a God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius and told him to seek out the Apostle Peter. And God spoke to Peter both through a vision and by an angel to convince him to go to Cornelius and share the gospel with him despite the fact that Cornelius was a Gentile. And after God had arranged that meeting and gathered people in Cornelius' home, he poured out the Holy Spirit on those who had gathered before Peter could even finish preaching the gospel. 
miraculous, remarkable. These are just a few of the supernatural things that God does throughout the book of Acts, demonstrating without a doubt that He is the one who builds the church, that He is the main character of this story. We believe Romans 8.28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not everything that happens is good. In fact, a lot of things that happen are bad. But praise God that He is able to work all things, even horrible, terrible things that happen as a result of our collective pride and rebellion. He works all those things together for good. We believe that God is totally sovereign over human history. That nothing happens that He does not cause or allow. That He is up to something and is actively working out His plan of redemption. And we believe that one day God will finish his project and those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ will live in a perfect, eternal fellowship with him. Thank God for that. Thank God that he is at work fixing what we've broken and while he will not override our freedom or force our hand, at the same time he cannot and will not be thwarted. The question is, how does that actually work? What does it actually look like in our real lives, in the real world, day in and day out, in the life of a 21st century Christian? We read stories about God's miraculous supernatural intervention on the day of Pentecost and Paul's conversion and the conversion of Cornelius, and we are in awe of what God can do. God can do that sort of thing. But those stories don't read like another day in the life of an ordinary Christian. Stories like that aren't the stories of an ordinary Christian Tuesday. Perhaps you've experienced God's supernatural intervention in your life. In fact, if you've been a believer long enough, I would say you have almost certainly had some days when God has powerfully, miraculously, and evidently intervened in one way or another. At the same time, I would say that almost certainly most of the days of your Christian life are not like the day of Pentecost. You wake up, you go to work, you come home, you watch TV, you eat dinner, you go grocery shopping, you go home and go to bed. Not much like the day of Pentecost. For the most part, even though we know that God is at work, whether or not we see what He's doing, we don't actually see what He's up to. Most of the days of our lives seem pretty ordinary. As God works out his project of redemption, his sovereignty and influence are often subtle and easy to miss. He does or allows things that we don't expect. He doesn't do things the way we would do them. He doesn't do what we think he should do when we think he should do it. God is always at work always sovereign, always working to achieve his plans and purposes, but we can often only see what God is up to in retrospect with time and perspective. I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that only the supernatural is miraculous. Think about that. I think we make the mistake of thinking that only the supernatural is miraculous. When God intervenes in a supernatural, powerful, evident way, that is no doubt miraculous. Obvious. Duh, right? But I think it is just as miraculous, just as miraculous, when God weaves together the seemingly ordinary, mundane, natural events of our lives 
to accomplish His plans and purposes. When you look back on the last five years of your life, there are probably only a few instances, a few days, when you can recall doing something evidently supernatural. Days when God intervened and did something miraculous that wonderfully disrupted the ordinary course of events of your life. But at the same time, when looking back over the last five years of your life, I hope you can also see the hand of God at work, weaving together all those other ordinary days, weaving together all those unexpected developments, and somehow using them all for good. In my view, that is just as miraculous as what he does in those instances when he intervenes supernaturally. In the book of Acts, whereas the day of Pentecost and Paul's, conversion, and Paul's conversion show us what God can do, I don't think they show us what God normally does. The day of Pentecost, Paul's conversion, those show us what God can do, but I don't think they show us what God normally does. That's not God's M.O. Take a moment to think about that. God can and does intervene supernaturally, and we should always hope and expect and expect that at any moment, that sort of intervention is possible. I'm not saying that God cannot or will not or does not intervene supernaturally. He does, He can, He will. But in terms of expectations, how will God work all things together for good in my life? How will I be able to see God's sovereign hand in my life? I think we should expect that while any old Tuesday could be like the day of Pentecost, most Tuesdays won't be. The good news is that even on those days, those days that seem mundane, God is still at work. Those days are still miraculous, though they may not be supernatural. We may not detect or understand God's working at that moment, but make no mistake about the fact that God is always sovereign. He is always up to something. So even on those days that don't seem like the day of Pentecost, still God is at work. Today we are going to look at a huge, long chunk of Scripture in order to get my record of best time. Whereas stories like Paul's conversion and the day of Pentecost demonstrate what God can do, I think the story of Paul's journey to Rome in Acts chapter 19 through 28, yes, Acts chapter 19 through 28, when I sent Barbara the information for the sermon, she said, is this right? I said, yes, brace yourself. Acts chapter 19 through 28, the story of Paul making his way to Rome. That's a story that shows what God ordinarily does. And I think it's a perfect story to end our time in the book of Acts. How does God work all things together for good? What does God's church building project really look like? Especially on all of those days that aren't like the day of Pentecost. Paul's journey to Rome is a story that demonstrates the way that God, over time and in unexpected ways, works all things together to accomplish his plans and purposes. And it's often only in retrospect, when we look back on the events and developments that we didn't understand at the time, that we see how God was working. So, we are not going to read all the way through Acts 19-28. through 28. We've read some long portions of Scripture during the series. We are not going to do that. Uh, Instead, I'm going to try to tell you the story of Paul's journey to Rome. I'm going to do my best to give you the Reader's Digest version of nine chapters of Scripture. 
And by looking at this huge story, nine chapters that covers nearly five years of time, I hope we will lead, we, well, let me try again. I hope that by looking at this story, nine chapters, five years, we'll learn a thing or two about God's MO, about what God ordinarily does. Okay, Matthew, you can go to our first slide. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> Last week, we, look at, we looked at Acts 19.21. After 20 years of ministry and somewhere around 6,500 miles traveled, we find Paul in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. And in Acts 19.21, we get a glimpse of Paul's plan for the future. And these are not just Paul's plans. This is what Paul senses he is being led to do by the Spirit. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Acts 19.21 Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Next slide. Map? Slide? Yes, sir. Okay, well, we're going to have technical issues. We'll work it out. <clears throat> From Ephesus, Paul's plan is to go back to the churches established in Macedonia and Achaia before returning to Jerusalem. And then, he senses that he must go on to Rome. I think uh, this is easily lost in us because we're not familiar with the geography uh, of the Mediterranean of the Mediterranean and the place names in the first century. So what does that mean? Uh, from Ephesus, Macedonia and Achaia are in the opposite direction of Jerusalem. And from Achaia, Jerusalem is in the opposite direction of Rome. So these are roundabout plans. Circuitous is one of my favorite words. I don't know why it is. While is my least favorite word. Just say it. Wow. It's a terrible word. But circuitous is a great word. This is a circuitous route. Paul is going the opposite direction of Jerusalem to get to Jerusalem and then going the opposite direction of Rome to get to Rome. Now Rome was... Oh, you can go back one. Are we working now? Yes, okay. In Ephesus. We're in Ephesus. Now Rome was obviously the epicenter of the Roman Empire. So for a missionary called to reach the Gentiles and preach the gospel throughout the world, reaching Rome would be a major accomplishment. So we're in Ephesus and this is what's next. Now you can go to that next slide. Okay. Just after Acts 19.21, there is a serious public uprising against Paul in Ephesus. And that serves as his cue to leave after nearly two years there. So, just as he has planned, he departs from Ephesus and visits the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. Next slide. From Achaia, Paul intended to set, back, uh, to set sail back towards Jerusalem, but he learns of another plot against him. So he decides instead to go back the same way he came, back through Macedonia, and then set sail from a port city near Ephesus. Once again, along the way, he visits and encourages the churches he established and the leaders he's appointed. After setting sail and crossing the Mediterranean Sea, Paul arrives in Syria in a city called Tyre. He stays with some Christians there who warn him not to go back to Jerusalem. If he went, they said, he would be attacked and or arrested. Still not deterred, Paul makes his way south to Caesarea. And then there, once again, Paul, meeting with Christians there, is warned, do not go to Jerusalem. Next slide. Still, despite these warnings, 
Paul is undeterred and insists that he is willing to face whatever might happen to him. So he goes to Jerusalem. When he arrives, he meets with James, James of biblical fame, the James you know, the half-brother of Jesus, and he was the leader of the church of Jerusalem at the time. James receives Paul gladly, and they celebrate the ministry that Paul has had among, amongst the Gentiles. But James warns Paul that many Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are still zealous about the Jewish law. These people are upset that Paul has not required Gentile Christians to obey the law. So James tells Paul to go to the temple and to purify himself according to the Jewish law. Hopefully, they hope, this will appease the people who are angry with him. So Paul went to the temple to purify himself. But while he was there, the Jews discovered him. They started an uproar, dragged him out of the temple, and made plans to kill him. The Roman government heard about the uproar and sent men to investigate. When they arrived on the scene, Paul was being beaten outside the temple, but their arrival forced those who were beating Paul to stop. Still, Paul was arrested so that the Romans could investigate, and this was the beginning of a long Roman trial and imprisonment. At first, the Romans intended to flog Paul to find out why all this was happening, as any good investigator would. But Paul was a Roman citizen, and when they found that out, they stopped. Instead of the flogging approach, the next day, the Roman government arranged for a hearing for Paul to explain himself before the Jewish council. And, as you might have expected, that hearing did not go particularly well. Despite the fact that it didn't go well, though, Paul came up with a clever way to escape. Uh, In the council, there were some members who were Sadducees, and there are some who were Pharisees. And this isn't a perfect comparison, but this is essentially the the equivalent of Paul being called before Congress, and there are some who are liberal Democrats and some who are conservative Republicans. These two groups disagree with one another, they don't like one another, and it's easy to get them to fight with one another. And so Paul says, let's try that. Paul used to be a Pharisee, and so he comes up with a clever plan to sort of align himself with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees take his side, and they start fighting with the Sadducees, and things get totally out of control. The focus is no longer on Paul. The Sadducees and Pharisees are fighting, and so the Romans decide to get Paul out of there and put him back in prison. It's a bad day whenever you think to yourself, I've got to figure a way to get out of here so I can get back to prison. That was Paul's day. So try to put yourself in Paul's shoes at this point. He thought he was supposed to go to Rome. Rome. Probably a year or more has gone by since he first sensed that call in Acts chapter 19. Yet again and again, no matter where he goes, his life is being threatened and he is now being held prisoner. Did I misunderstand God? Did I do something wrong? Why am I here? What is God doing? Next slide. We'll get there. The night after this hearing before the Jewish council, in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Paul, uh, we learn that Paul is in prison and uh, the Lord visits Paul and says to him, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Things probably have not gone to this point the way Paul hoped or expected, but his calling to Rome is confirmed while Paul is in jail. 
Next slide. While Paul, while Paul is being held by the Romans in Jerusalem, the Jews develop yet another plot to kill Paul. This is a theme again and again and again. No matter where Paul goes, they want to kill him. But through the grapevine, the Romans hear about this plot, so they decide to send Paul away to the Roman governor Felix in the city of Caesarea. Next slide. Paul's trial and imprisonment in Caesarea lasted for another two years. When a new local Roman ruler uh, came to the area, Paul had yet another hearing, and yet again the Jews conspired to kill him. But as was his right as a Roman citizen, Paul appealed to Caesar. Essentially what Paul is asking to do at this point is have his case appealed to the Supreme Court. And this new Roman ruler granted Paul's request he would be sent to Caesar. But before he could be sent away, yet another, even higher-ranking Roman government official wanted to investigate Paul. So once again, he was investigated. Paul defends himself, and ironically, in the end, this Roman official decides that Paul is innocent and could have been released if he had not already appealed to Caesar. With that, Paul is sent away, along with, Acts tells us very specifically, 276 other people. Paul boards a ship, and that ship is bound for Italy. Conditions at sea uh, were not good. It's nearing wintertime, and they made very slow progress, making several, several stops along the way. Eventually, they reached a port city on the island of Crete. Paul suggested that they wait there until the winter was over, but the ship's pilot and owner insisted that they continue on to reach a more suitable place to spend the winter. Their destination was not far away, another city on the island of Crete, just a few miles along the coast called Phoenix. But on their way there, they were caught in a storm and driven far out to sea. You can imagine the fear and doubt. Lost in the Mediterranean as winter sets in. If you've seen Deadliest Catch, it's like that, except in a wooden boat and lost and under arrest. Not a good place to be. Next slide. But in the middle of the storm, while they're out lost at sea, Acts 27, 21 through 26, Paul said to those men on the boat, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Next slide. For 14 days they were caught in the storm and lost at sea. Finally they found land and attempted to run the ship aground, but they hit a reef and were shipwrecked. So they swam ashore to the small island of Malta. And things actually went pretty well for them uh, on Malta. There, was, there were native people there who were welcoming, who were kind, who were hospitable. But if Paul's difficulties to this point hadn't been enough, he was even bitten by a viper uh, while he was on the island of Malta. These locals thought he would certainly die, but as it turns out, he was entirely unharmed. Three months later, when winter was over, they set sail once again, and finally they arrived in Rome. 
Let's pick up the story there. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. This is the last chapter of the book of Acts. And you can go to the next slide, Matthew. Acts chapter 28, verse 16. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed, when the appointed day had come, when when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others, were, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made this one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with ears they can barely hear, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Acts 19. Paul senses by the Spirit that he is to make his way to Rome. Five years later, after surviving multiple attacks against his life, imprisonment, trial, shipwreck, and even a viper attack, Paul had finally made it to Rome. And the book of Acts ends with Paul proclaiming the gospel in Rome boldly and without hindrance. Five years. Five years. There were some pretty remarkable days along the way. But on how many days did Paul wake up, gather his things, walk 20 miles, and then set up camp to go to sleep and do it all over again the next day? How many days during those five years did Paul wake up in prison alone, sit in his cell, and do nothing until he went to sleep at night? How many times did he wonder why things were happening the way they were? How many times was he tempted to ask where God was in all of this? 
Paul was a man of remarkable faith, so I'm sure he asked those questions a lot less frequently than I would have. If I was in Ephesus and felt called to go to Rome, do you know how I would go? Matthew, throw up that slide. Like that. That's how I'd go. And that's first century accurate. I I looked it up just because I was curious on Apple Maps. By driving a car, it's about a 24-hour drive. That's how I'd go from Ephesus to Rome. You know what God did? You know how God does it? Next slide. That's a picture of Romans 8.28. That's a picture of the way God works all things together for good. That's a picture that allows us to see God at work weaving together both ordinary and extraordinary days, good things and bad things, to accomplish his plans and purposes. God will probably not do in your life what you expect him to do. God will probably not act when you expect him to act. There will probably be a lot of days when you struggle to understand why God is doing what he's doing or allowing what he's allowing. There will probably be a lot of days when it seems like your life is simply following its natural course and God isn't doing anything at all. In all likelihood, most of the days of the rest of your life will seem completely ordinary. But we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Make no mistake that what God does with ordinary days and unexpected developments is just as miraculous as what he does when he supernaturally intervenes. Whether you see it or not, whether you realize it or not, God is up to something big. He will build his church. He is at work fixing what we have broken. He will accomplish his plans and purposes, and he cannot be thwarted. Let's get on board with that plan. Amen.